week and a half ago, May 20th, was the 6,028th Late Show with David Letterman. 6,028. And it was his last one. You probably saw that in the news, didn't you? I can remember watching David Letterman when I was a, in high school with my dad, staying up late and sitting on the couch and watching it. And that was his last time. And he retired after 32 years of hosting late night talk shows. One critic, one, one person who, uh, who's a critic of late night TV said this about Letterman. He said, David's influence was phenomenal. Whenever there was something important going on in America, you turned on David Letterman. He was the conscience of America. He was a a bit of a social commentator. He was our local curmudgeon. Now, whether you agreed with him or not, that's a hard statement to argue with, that that for 32 years, every night, he was giving commentary on what's going on in our country and, and in our world. And during his final months as host, actors and comedians all expressed their gratitude to him and They told stories about how he gave them their big break or uh, how he was there for them in a a time of trial or how his example served as just an inspiration to them and an encouragement to them. Tom Brokaw was one example, and he made the comment that um, during the time when he was diagnosed with cancer, he said, Letterman would call regularly. He came to a benefit in my honor, and he stunned everybody. He wasn't a big prima donna. Now, even though David Letterman probably, to my knowledge, didn't lead people to become more like Jesus Christ, he certainly did have an influence on those he surrounded and that surrounded him. And he was an example. He was an encourager to them. He was somebody who left a mark on them. And he was somebody that that so many people in his industry look up to. Well, this morning, what's going to happen is we're going to see Paul give a couple examples of guys who give the example of of how we ought to live the Christian life. He he gives a couple real-life, tangible examples of how to live. Can can you think of somebody in your life who's been an influencer to you? If, If I just say, think for a minute, who's been one of the two, three most influential people in your life? Do most of you have a, have a, have a person come to mind? Somebody comes to mind for you pretty quickly, I would guess, that they've influenced you in some way, shape, or form. Uh, one author in the name of Thomas Brooke, he said, example is the best kind of rhetoric. Example is the best kind of rhetoric. And we think of those examples right away and how they influenced us because we saw the way they lived their life. It wasn't, I'm going to guess here that, that the people that you said had the biggest influence on you, if you think of them right now, it wasn't what they told you. It was what they showed you. That you weren't necessarily taught all kinds of things by them, but in reality, if you really think about it, you caught all kinds of things from them. And their example to you, the way they lived it out, the way they fleshed it out, that was the thing, that was the thing that influenced you. John MacArthur, a pastor, he says, the single greatest tool of leadership is the power of an exemplary life, living by example. Now, why is it that watching someone's example is such a powerful thing? I mean, why for these people who spoke the praises of David Letterman, why was his example such a powerful thing? Not so much what he said, but his example. Why, why does Paul give us examples here? Why, I would contend to you that the reason is that examples show us a lot of things that principles cannot. 
Think about it. Paul has taken, if you haven't been with us, we're studying through the book of Philippians. And so far we've covered up through about the middle of chapter 2. And the whole first part of chapter 2 and a lot of chapter 1, Paul gives all kinds of principles and precepts for how we ought to live our lives. Right? He says to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He he says to have this mind, the mind of Christ. He says uh, to have unity, to be like-minded. He gives all these principles. Here's what you're supposed to do. Now go do it. The problem with principles and with precepts and with instructions is they're really good at showing us our duty. They're not very good at showing us how to do it. And examples do something that principles cannot. Examples give us confidence that the duty that we're told to accomplish, the thing we're we're told to, to do, can actually be done. That's why an example is so powerful, because it shows us, it puts flesh on it. Now, I'm not sure about you, but, you know, I hear all the things that Paul talks about in the first couple chapters here so far. The things I mentioned, you know, that that we should choose to rejoice, that we should live humbly, that, that we shouldn't complain. We should do all things without grumbling or complaining. Anybody grumbled or complained since we taught that verse? Anybody? How about um, working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Have, have the mind of Christ. Be like Jesus. I don't know about you, but I hear those examples and I go, or those, those principles and I go, huh, I don't know if there's been a day in my life where I've done every one of those perfectly. I, I know there hasn't this week. <laughs> I know maybe not this morning even. And, and, and I go through that list. And I go, man, that's, that's impossible for me to do. It's simple. Josh, that sounds like good advice, but I don't think I can do it. And my guess is maybe some of the Philippians heard this letter read to them from Paul. And they go, yeah, Paul, I agree. That's good advice. You're right. I should do that. You're right. There's no chance, though. I don't think I can. I think it's impossible. But thankfully, what Paul does is he gives a couple examples of people who are doing it. And it gives us an example of people to look at. And it gives us confidence to go, hey, he's kind of like me. He's a pretty normal guy. He lived it out. I guess I can live it out. And that example has a powerful effect on us. And that's where we're headed this morning. Paul fleshes it out with some examples. The first one we're going to see is Timothy. The second one we're going to see is a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. It's a fun one to say. See if you can spell that or say it ten times fast. And in the next chapter, in a couple weeks, we're going to see Paul give the example even of himself. In in chapter 3, in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul's going to show us some examples this morning of what it looks like to live out some of the things he's told us to do. So that's where we're headed. Let me pray. And let me pray that, that those examples would be powerful for us. And that we, in turn, would become examples to those around us. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. And uh, thank you that that ultimately he's he's our victor and uh, he's the one who accomplished our salvation. But he's also the one who is theologically a Christus exemplar. He's our example. he's, He's the one we're to live and strive to become and be like, to have a mind like his, which is ours in Christ. Yet we look at Jesus, Lord, so many times and we know that because of our sin, he was sinless. And because of our sin, we, 
we'll never achieve that total perfection until the day that he completes it in us when he brings us back to be, be with him forever. But until that day, we're called to grow in our righteousness, to grow to become more like him. And I thank you for the example of men like Paul and uh, the examples that he lists for us this morning in Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, guys who are normal guys, but who uh, lived this out and grew in their faith. And they give us examples for how we too ought to live and grow and become like Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would uh, fill me and speak to and through me as I teach and preach your word. Um, Might you convict my own heart too, even as uh, we go through these things and help me to be a better example. I pray against the enemy who uh, would, would steal our joy, who would accuse us and tempt us and, and tell us it's, it's a hopeless cause, that we can never do it. And instead, Holy Spirit, might you uh, encourage our hearts and uh, be our helper. Come alongside us and uh, help us see that we can do it with your help. Make us more like Jesus, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So after verses of principles and instructions, we come to chapter 2, verse 19. Let's read there. And here's our first example. Example number one is Timothy. Here it is. Paul writes, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too might be cheered by news of you. You know, Paul, if you don't know, if you haven't been with us, Paul is in prison while he's writing this. He was imprisoned simply for preaching the gospel, and he's been in prison for a number of years. And he gets to this point, and he's uh, under house arrest, and he's chained 24-7 to one of the imperial guard. And he has a little bit of freedom, but not much. Freedom in the sense that, that his friends, his loved ones can come and visit him now. He's in Rome, but he can't go anywhere else. And so that's why he writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him, Paul writes, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it'll go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now this morning, we're not going to see some deep theological truth. So if you were hoping for me to just unlock something and just be wowed by it, you're not going to be today. You're not going to be most mornings, by the way, if you're, if you're a regular, you know that. But what we see here this morning is something that's really practical. There's not some deep theological truth, not some hidden gem. It's just really practical. You know, I mentioned Paul had been in prison for years, and he doesn't know how his trial is going to turn out. It might result in his freedom. But it's also just as likely that it might result in his death. Paul is writing letters then to some of the churches that he's planted over the years. I mean, he's in prison. He's under house arrest. He's chained to an imperial guard. he's, He's got some time on his hands. He can't go anywhere else, but he can certainly send a letter to the churches that he's planted. And in this case, he's writing to the church in the city of Philippi. And you can read about how he planted that church in Acts chapter 16. And he's giving them what could be. He doesn't know. Nobody knows. It could be his final words to them. 
And as far as we know, it may have been his final words to them. We don't, we don't know if he ever made it back to Philippi or not. So this passage is basically Paul saying, you know, I, I can't come and see you right now, but I'm going to send a couple guys in my place. And if and when I can come, I'll be there quickly. But it's helpful for us that when Paul writes this, when he talks about these two guys who he's going to send to them, he tells us a little bit about them. And, and I think he does it intentionally, reminding everybody that, hey, remember, remember they would have read this whole, whole letter all at one set, all in one setting in front of the whole church. And they heard all these things about how they should be like-minded, how they shouldn't grumble and complain, how they should have the mind of Christ, how they should be unified, all these things that they had heard. And then he hears, oh, by the way, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. And Paul was sometimes pretty subtle, but he got his point across. And I think his point here is, by the way, I'm going to send Timothy to you soon. You know all these things we just talked about? Look at Timothy. You're going to see all those things in him. And he tells about Timothy. He, he tells some things about him as we get into the text. But before we get there, I mean, the, the, the original readers of this text, they knew Timothy. It would be like if, if I wrote to you and said, um, that, that, that Pastor Dan was going to come and see you. You'd be like, oh yeah, I know Dan. He doesn't need any further explanation. And, and I, can, you know, I can just tell a couple things about him and you know exactly who I'm talking about. But for us, maybe you don't know who Timothy is. So here's who Timothy is. Timothy, first off, he was the, a native of a small town. And it's one of two towns, we're not sure, Derby or, Lyst, or Lystra, however you want to say it, Lystra or Lystra. There were two small towns in an area that the Bible refers to as Galatia, but that you and I would know as modern-day Turkey. So he's, he's Turkish. His mother was a Jew by the name of Eunice, and his grandmother was Lois. His father, though, isn't mentioned by name in Scripture, but his father, we know, is not Jewish, but Greek. He, he's Hellenistic. So he had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, and he was in kind of this, I don't know if it would have been biracial or not, but certainly by ethnic household, right? And, and he has a Jewish mother, a Greek father, and he was able to meet and, and kind of understand these two colliding cultures of Judaism and Hellenism or Greek thought. That's what Hellenism means. And, and, and curiously, Paul is the one who's been sent not to preach to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to the Greek people, to the Hellenists. And, and so a guy like Timothy, who's incredibly valuable and incredibly smart, and he has this background. He knows the Jewish things from his mom and his grandma, and he knows uh, the Greek world because of his dad and has maybe some of those aspirations for a career even. And he knows how these two things intersect. And Paul can use a guy like Timothy in a powerful way then to further the gospel among these people. And that's exactly what he does. Now, obviously, because he wasn't Jewish, uh, Timothy hadn't been circumcised. He had to be circumcised. In other words, that seems maybe weird to us, but that was just how he was marked as being Jewish. And, and then his word would be acceptable to the Jewish people. He was educated in Greek culture and in Greek circles formally informally by his mother and from whom he learned the doctrines of salvation as paul tells us in his letter to him 
from his father, as I mentioned, he learned Greek culture. He learned that world, that perspective. And he's, he's eminently qualified to go with Paul into the Greek world to bear the message of Jesus Christ. Now, one thing we don't know about Timothy is when did he become a Christian? We don't know. We don't even know the details about it. We don't know when, we don't know how, but we know that clearly he did. When Paul meets him in Acts 16, he had already, he had already become a Christian. He was a, such a proven young man that Paul says, I want to take this guy with me. I want to take this kid with me. And, and Timothy becomes Paul's protege. Now we've mentioned Timothy before in passing in that light, but I don't know if you, do you really know, maybe, maybe it occurred to me even more this week, just how extensively a part of Paul's life this young Timothy was. Paul speaks of him as his own son in the Lord, his son in the faith, like a true child. In, in this passage, even, he says Timothy was obedient like a son working alongside his father. He speaks of him also not only as a son, but as his brother and his co-worker and his his fellow servant, his slave, his, his comrade in the faith. We know that Timothy was with Paul in Philippi. But did you know he was also with them in Thessalonica and in Berea and in Corinth and in Ephesus? And now he's here with them in Rome. Imagine uh, we go on a mission trip and I say, hey, we're going to go plant a church. You want to come along? And I find one person to come with me and I leave here and I go and I start planting churches and I, I plant one in all these major cities. And the one common thread in everyone is the guy who planted it and the guy with him. <laughs> in these churches, it was Paul and Timothy. And Timothy was by his side over and over all the time. And he was of great use to Paul because he was so willing to do anything Paul wanted him to do and to go anywhere Paul wanted him to go. And if Paul said, hey, I need you to go visit this church, what would Timothy do? All right, Paul, what do you want me to tell him? And he goes. Paul sends him to Ephesus, one of the major churches, and he leaves him there to care for that church. And, and a message in the hands of Timothy was safe as it was in the hands of Paul because Timothy was truly his protege. He was his disciple. He was... In every sense of the word, Timothy was becoming like Paul. In fact, in, in, in when one of his letters to the Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthians, this church that had all kinds of crazy stuff going on, like they made up ways to sin. I mean, they were way off the deep end, right? And, and Paul sends Timothy to them with a letter. And in the letter, it's, he, says, uh, he says, be imitators of me, Paul writes. And I send Timothy to you. Well, why did he send Timothy? Because he wanted them to see a, a tangible physical example of somebody like him that they would live that out. And, and I, don't, I don't think Paul probably, well, we see it here. He didn't have anybody quite like Timothy whom he could trust, who was like-minded with him, who was alongside him, who thought like him, who... Wouldn't that be great if by the end of your life, you could look back at your Christian faith, at your walk, and you could, wouldn't it be great joy just to look back and know you had one person like Timothy in your life who you had poured yourself into over and over and who you saw grow in their faith and you saw step up and lead ministry and you saw 
grow into everything that you desired them to be and that Christ desired them to be, wouldn't that be a great encouragement? Well, Paul's last letter that he writes is to Timothy, (laughs) to his disciple, to the one who had done that. And he had great joy and affection for Timothy. So we're moving on. Number one, Timothy's example. Now, the reason this was a powerful example to send Timothy is because the Philippians knew him as well. He had been in Philippi from the very beginning. He was taken up by Paul from Philippi in Acts 16. And later in the 16th chapter, the church, or excuse me, earlier in chapter in Acts 16, and later in 16, uh, the church in Philippi was founded. Timothy was, was surely there at the founding of that church. And so they knew Timothy as long as they had known Paul. Timothy was a great guy for him to send. He was, he was the right choice. I mean, next to Paul, Timothy was probably their second favorite guy. He, he was Paul's right-hand man. And maybe Paul was their second favorite next to Timothy, for all we know. But Timothy was there at the very beginning of this church. And Paul's excited then to send him. So let's look at some of the things Paul tells us about Timothy or that he tells the church in Philippi so that they would accept him and be encouraged by him coming. First off, he says in verse 20, I have no one like him. I have no one like him. Number one, Timothy was like-minded with Paul. In fact, your translation, if you looked at this literally, it would literally say he's like-minded. I have no one else who's like-minded. He, he was he was like Paul. He was, a, he was a kindred spirit with Paul. He was Paul's mini-me in a real sense. I mean, he was just more and more like Paul all the time. And he trusted him. And let me tell you, as, as a pastor, man, I'd, I'd probably give up half my salary to have two or three Timothys who I could totally trust just to come alongside. I wouldn't give it all up because my wife might not be happy with me. I got to save some for her. But to have somebody come alongside me to to help and to be like-minded and know, man, I I totally, fully, completely trust them. If I give them something to do, it's going to be done. They're not going to flake out. If if I say, hey, let's go here, they're on board. Wouldn't that be great? Paul had that in Timothy. He was like-minded with Paul. He was like-minded. He was similar, you might write, kindred spirit. Number two, the other thing we see right there in verse 20 is that he cared for people. He genuinely cared for people. Look, Paul says, I have no one like him, no one like-minded. In other words, Paul's like, I can't come. So the next best thing I can do is send Timothy. He will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. The other thing about Timothy, not only is he like-minded with Paul, but boy, he genuinely cared for people. Remember the the shepherd Jesus talks about in John 10? What did the good shepherd do? He laid down his life for his sheep. Timothy had compassion for the church in the same way. When, When Paul writes 2 Corinthians 11, that the greatest burden in all the ministry was the care of the churches, he He goes on and mentions Timothy and his care for the churches. What's curious too is if you would look at this, if you could see this in the Greek, is that that term that 
he genuinely is cared for the people. He's genuinely concerned for their welfare. It's, it's really interesting. It's a really strong word. And in fact, it's the same word that's used later in chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. You could literally translate this verse that Paul says, I have, I'm going to send Timothy for, for I have no one like him, no one else like-minded who is genuinely anxious for your well-being. Genuinely anxious for you. Now, this is curious. How does Paul write that? No one anxious like him when he says later, don't be anxious about anything. How does that, do you see what I'm saying? How can he say later in chapter four, don't be anxious. But here he says, he commends Timothy with the exact same word. He says, I commend Timothy to you because no one else will be anxious for you. Well, I think here's the reason. When we get to chapter 4, verse 6, we're going to find out that the anxiety and worry that Paul's talking about there that we shouldn't have and that rather we should have peace is anxiety we have on behalf of ourselves. Of how's it going to go with me? How's it going to turn out? How am I going to face my opponents? What's going to happen? How am I going to pay the rent this month? How am I going to... Paul's like, don't be anxious. Trust God. Over here, the, the way he uses that term is not that Timothy's anxious for himself, how things are going to turn out, but that he's anxious, he, he's concerned for others. He's living out that acronym of joy, isn't he? He's, he's like-minded. He, he has his eyes focused, we're going to see in a second, on Jesus. He's, he's focused genuinely on others and then himself. He's not anxious for his own well-being. He's anxious for the well-being of the church. Paul's an, or Timothy's an incredible example. Wouldn't that be great if... if all of us could be like that. If, if I could be like that 24-7 where my total concern was not for me, but, but for the church, for you. I strive for that. I, I try to do that, but I'm sinful. I, I have selfish desires and motives times too. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be incredible though if we could all grow to be more and more like Timothy? Well, the other thing about Timothy is he was focused on Jesus. Timothy was focused on Jesus. He was, he was single-minded, Paul writes. Look at verse 21. He says, I have no one else to send to you. Be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul, the guy who had planted most of the churches he's writing to and who had probably led many of the people he's writing to to faith in Jesus Christ, he says, of all these people, hundreds, maybe thousands of people I've led to Christ over the years, I've got no one like Timothy. And even the others who are with me, they're helpful, I love them, but their interests are, are pointed back at themselves. I don't have anybody else like Timothy whose, whose interests are focused on Jesus. All these other, they seek their own interests. They, not those of Jesus Christ, at least not all the time. Yet that, that's a profound statement, isn't it? For Paul to say this, listen, take this guy back. I have nobody like him. He's all, all the time. His focus is on Jesus. And what had he just written previously? He said, have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Be like Jesus. Turn to him, focus on him. And he's like, man, Timothy, I have nobody else like him. You want to see what that's like? Look at Timothy. 
the other thing we see about Timothy, not only was his focus on Jesus, but he had proven himself. He had proven himself. He says, verse 21, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. You know Timothy's worth, how how as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. You know Timothy. You've seen him from the very beginning. You've seen how faithful he is. You've, you've seen how he's proven himself, how, how he's, he's stood up in the midst of opposition, how he's, how he's uh, after he gets discouraged, he gets back up and keeps moving, how, 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 how he faces opposition, how he keeps his mind on Jesus Christ, how, how his example is one of joy, how he chooses to rejoice. You've seen Timothy's proven worth. You know and it wasn't by a test. It wasn't like the, Paul was like, yeah, you should see Timothy's test scores. He's off the charts. Straight A's. It wasn't a written test for Timothy. It was a test not by that, but by example, right? A test by example. He had proved it by service, by testings and trials. You would see not only... They knew him not only from Acts 16, but he comes in contact with the Philippians in Acts 19 and 20 as well. You know, uh, as a sidebar, this tells me as a pastor that your longevity in ministry is huge. Being at the same place for a long time is, is really helpful because people begin to trust you and they see your proven worth. And by God's grace, if he would never move me from here, I'd, I'd be excited about that that he would allow me to stay here and continue to prove myself to you and, and to our community and, and to see the church built and see Jesus honored and to follow Timothy's example. He says also that he served with me like a child serving his father. Th- that word serve is, is really to slave. And I think there's some translations that even say it that way, that he, he slaved with me. Paul doesn't say that he served under me. He says he served with me alongside him. And when he says like a son with his father, it's not like the dad and the son where the dad uses his son as his grunt work (laughs) to go do everything. But where he serves with his son alongside him, showing him, teaching him, helping him, and they, they serve together. Paul had great affection for Timothy. So we've seen Timothy was like-minded with Paul. He cared genuinely for people. He was focused on Jesus. He had proven himself. Number five, he gave of himself. Timothy gave of himself. See, in verse 22 at the end, it says, you, you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Paul talked earlier about the, the goal being living worthy of the gospel, to advance the gospel. That doesn't come without sacrifice. How many of you know, you, you've, you've been part of the church for a long time. Maybe you've helped plant churches. You've served in ministry. You've, uh, some have been, you've been a missionary. You've, what's that been like for you to, to serve, to advance the gospel? You know what it means? It means you, you give of yourself. You give of your time. You give of your talent. You give of your treasure. Timothy did all these things. And then after you give, you, you give some more. <laughs> And you keep giving and keep giving because of what Jesus has given us. And Timothy gave of himself. We don't hear anything about Timothy in the rest of his life. We always hear him in terms of his service 
to the church and his service to Paul. I mean, if you, you read that just on, a, on eye level, you go, man, does this Timothy have a life? <laughs> well, he, he does, but it's focused on serving on Christ. He's, he's given himself to that. And then number six, maybe one of the biggest things is Timothy was useful. Paul says in verse 23 and 24, he is useful. I, I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it'll go with me. Paul's not going to send him right now because he doesn't know exactly how things are going to go for him in terms of his trial. So I'll send Timothy as soon as I know how it's going to turn out for me. Why would he say that? Because Timothy's still useful to him right there. Timothy wasn't just there at his beck and call, but Timothy was useful. He, He served in a selfless way along Paul's side. And I trust in the Lord that shortly that I myself will come also, let me ask you, are you useful in ministry? When you say, I'll do it, and somebody calls, do you do it? When, when there's, there's help needed, do you give it? Timothy was useful. He could be counted on. So he's our first example. Timothy was like-minded with Paul. He, was, he genuinely cared for the people. He was focused on Jesus. He had, he had uh, proven himself. He gave of himself. He was useful. And we hear about Timothy and we go, it sounds like Timothy was a pretty exceptional guy. Like he had all the skills and all the tools to do ministry. Like he had all the gifts, right? And you know what? He, he probably was a pretty exceptional young man. And I think Paul's saying, I had no one like him. Paul knew as well as anybody that that, that guys like Timothy can be kind of rare in terms of their skill set and their ability and all these things. And so maybe we hear that and we go, boy, I don't know. Timothy had it all going on. I, I, he had like 14 gifts. I've got half of one. I don't know if I can serve like Timothy. Well, maybe that's exactly why Paul goes on then, not just with Timothy, but to Epaphroditus, the common man's. Servant. Look at verse 25. Here's our example number two, Epaphroditus. I have thought it necessary then to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy, but not yet. So I'm going to send Epaphroditus. Verse 26, for he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He was near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, honor such men, Paul writes, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus was just a pretty normal guy. You know, we know nothing else about him. We don't know anything else about him other than what we just read. You know, we look at Timothy, as I said, you say, yeah, he's a gifted man. He could preach and teach. He was unique spiritually. He was called by God, set apart. He was a leader. He was, he was trained by Paul, Josh. I wasn't, I'm trained by you, man. Sorry, but he was with Paul. What do you expect? But what about Epaphroditus then? He's just a normal guy. 
He's not a statesman. He's not an apostle. We have no indication that he was ever an elder in the church at Philippi. In fact, because of the fact that he was sent, I believe, to serve Paul, it's more likely he he may have been a deacon. There's nothing said to lead us to believe that his ministry was anything dynamic or dramatic or unforgettable or earth-shaking. He didn't have a radio show or something on TV. He didn't write books. He wasn't eloquent in all the languages. He, he's a pretty normal guy. He was, he was the hero of the common man, in a sense. And maybe in that sense, his level of service becomes a lot better example to us than even that of Timothy. He exemplifies what it means to sacrifice for the sake of Christ. Knowing it has no public affirmation. You know, Epaphroditus, we're going to see here, he knew what he was heading into. He knew that there was opposition in Rome. And if he was going to go serve alongside Paul, and if Paul would die pretty soon, who would be next on their radar? All of Paul's buddies. <laughs> and, and he knew there was opposition, yet he went. And he lived out his faith. You know, sometimes I look at this and I go, boy, a lot of times, sometimes if you read, you'll hear people talking about, man, as a church, we just got to be like the early church. But then we forget about what the culture was like in the early church, where the early church was planted. Because at the same time, we complain about our culture, yet we want to be like the early church. And yet, if you look at it, our culture is becoming just like it was in the early church with all kinds of opposition to the church. Now we can truly be like the early church. <laughs> like, oh, that doesn't sound as fun. Yet that's what it was. And Epaphroditus goes in the midst of opposition to Rome to serve alongside Paul. So let me back up a little bit. What do we know about Epaphroditus? Well, we don't directly know anything about him. We don't know anything about his background directly. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know how long he'd been a Christian. We don't know what his function is in the church. We don't know anything except by implication from this passage. And so we're going to try to construct as best we can a quick profile of this unique guy. What happened was the the Philippians sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul. Paul's in prison in Rome under house arrest. He has uh, no possessions of his own. He's there. He's in the end of Acts. It says he paid for his own way while he was in Rome. So it's likely the church hearing of his distress wants to send him a gift, wants to send him money, wants to send him uh, possessions, things that he would need and care for him. And so they're going, boy, who do we send to go care for Paul? Think about that. The Apostle Paul, maybe the greatest Christian to ever live, right? Maybe the greatest follower of Jesus ever, outside of Jesus himself. Who do we send to encourage and hang out with Paul, to give him a gift from us, to care for his needs, to be around him? Boy, Paul, he's pretty perceptive. If we send the wrong guy with the wrong motives... If anybody's going to see through it, it's going to be Paul. If if we send somebody who uh, maybe likes to gossip, boy, that's not going to go well. Because then Paul's going to think we're all a bunch of gossips. (laughs) Who would they send but somebody who they eminently trusted and who was mature in their faith, who would go to Paul, would be faithful in taking the message to him and taking the gift to him and who Paul would be encouraged by, and who Paul would see in him an example of what's happening back at the church so that Paul would be encouraged. 
So we can, we can infer then that this guy was a, a man of genuine spiritual, genuine spiritual virtue, that he had the heart of a servant. It, it wasn't like he, you, know, you drove, drove a couple of hours, dropped off a gift at the prison, spent an hour or two there, and then drove home. <laughs> he had to journey to Rome. He, he was probably gone for a few months from his family and friends. He had to take time off of his job. He sacrificially served to go care for Paul. That's what makes me think maybe he was a deacon in the church. Deacon just means servant. He was also a man of courage, as I mentioned. He knew exactly what he was walking into. He knew that once they were done with Paul, if they killed Paul, the rest of them were on the radar. He knew the risk involved, and beyond that, we just don't know a whole lot. One of the things we can know, though, is that Epaphroditus was actually a pretty common name. There was a guy in in Colossians by the name of Epaphras who's mentioned, which would have been short for Epaphroditus, but there's no reason to believe that it's the same guy. But his name, we also know he was originally not Jewish, but probably at least his family was Greek and pagan because Epaphroditus is a reference to, have you ever heard of, of the Greek goddess Aphrodite? You ever heard that name? Maybe you don't know much of who she was. In Rome, she was called Venus. Excuse me. She's the goddess of love. And this guy, Epaphroditus, was essentially named for this goddess. His name means, Epaphroditus means the favorite of Aphrodite. Which tells us he wasn't born in a Jewish home, but a Gentile one. And who worshipped pagan deities, the goddess of Aphrodite among them. And she was sometimes called the goddess of good luck. And when when the... the Greeks would play their dice games and they'd roll the dice. You know, instead of luck be a lady, it'd be Epaphroditus. And they'd throw their dice. That's what, honestly, that's what they would say. And they'd, they'd play their games. Favorite of Aphrodite, come through for me, Aphrodite. Eventually it came to just mean lovely or loving or charming, but so we know he's from a pagan home. Well, what kind of example is he for us then? We've seen clearly he's faithful, clearly he's courageous, clearly he's a servant. But let's just zero in on verse 25, and I think we can find a handful of things here for us. Paul gives five different titles to Epaphroditus in verse 25. Number one, he says, so I'm going to send to you then Epaphroditus. thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. Number one, he he calls him my brother, or I would contend he was Paul's friend. This was how he was in relation to Paul personally. To call him his brother would mean we we have a common source of life in Jesus Christ. We have that common bond. Brothers from a different mother, but we both love Jesus, so we're brothers. Right? Common source of life in Jesus. He was, he was Paul's friend. Paul views him in a personal way. He wouldn't have called him brother otherwise. Adelphus carries, that's the word for brother, carries the idea of camaraderie or friendship, affection. He's, Paul had affection for him as well then by calling him brother. So I would contend this guy became Paul's friend in the short time he was there. And maybe Paul knew him from previous trips to Philippi. We don't know. The other thing Paul calls him, number two, he was Paul's co-worker. He calls him his fellow worker. So not only in relation to Paul is he 
his fellow brother, he's, he's a friend, but in relation to the task at hand, he's a fellow worker. He's a co-worker. He's, he's committed to the ministry and to the gospel. And Paul uses this term 12 times total in, in his letters. And every time he mentions it, it's always in reference to somebody who's laboring alongside him in the gospel and in ministry. So we know Epaphroditus served in ministry. He was Paul's co-worker. Well, let me ask you then, on each of these, would people describe you this way as a fellow brother, fellow sister, somebody who's their friend in fellowship with Jesus Christ? Would they describe you as their fellow co-worker, somebody who's working alongside them in ministry, common effort? Number three, he was Paul's comrade. He calls him a fellow soldier. This was in relation to a common enemy. If you, I read this week that this term is actually, when it's used, this fellow soldier, when it's used outside of, of the Bible, it's used um, genuinely to refer to a common soldier who is honored for something great. Just a common guy who got some kind of reward or some kind of honor and where the leader, the commander-in-chief, their, their superior would call them not somebody who's lower on the rank, but their fellow soldier, somebody who's on par with them, who's equal with them. So for Paul to say this, this was a term that in their day and age, it'd be Paul like saying, man, this guy deserves the Christian Medal of Honor. That's who he is. He's my fellow soldier working with me. It was, a, it was a real honor for him to call him that. And it, it showed Paul's humility as well. But those first three are in relation to Paul, but he also refers to Epaphroditus in relation to his relationship with the church in Philippi. Number four, he was the Philippians' messenger. He calls him your messenger. Your messenger. Messenger is uh, this word apostolos. It's the word we get apostle from. Or, which means a sent one. Now, in, in the Bible, we talked about this when we talked about spiritual gifts and the gift of apostleship. We're not, Paul's not calling him an apostle, capital A, who's sent directly by the, by the word of Jesus Christ, but apostle, small a, who's sent by the church. See, Paul, when he refers to himself, he says an apostle of Jesus Christ. When he refers to Epaphroditus, he says an apostle, a messenger of yours, your messenger, your sent one. In the same way, when... Um, get to go to India this fall and I'll be, I'll be sent as your apostle, your messenger. When we take a whole team to India in 2016, you'll, that team will be sent as your apostles, your messengers. And, and not capital A like Paul, but lower A, just being sent with a message and to minister. And that was the second thing he said. He, he was the Philippians minister. He was the one who, who gave of himself to care for Paul. He's quite a remarkable man, Epaphroditus is. If we had time to talk even more about that. He's unselfish, he's humble, he's sympathetic, he's compassionate, he's a servant, he's courageous, he's godly. He had built a strong bond with Paul. He worked fairly alongside of him and did his share, and, and he was a great soldier fighting the enemy. So why does Paul send him back? Well, he says, because it's necessary. 
Now, if you're in Philippi and you get a letter from Paul, imagine you sent Epaphroditus to go care for Paul and you get a letter, Paul saying, hey, I'm sending Epaphroditus back. I believe Epaphroditus is the one who brought the letter back. So you sent Paul or sent Epaphroditus with all these provisions to care for Paul. All of a sudden, this guy comes back and you're going, dude, what, what are you doing back? Why, why are you back? This is why Paul mentions him, I think. We, we sent you. Did you go? Why didn't you were supposed to stay there with him? Why'd you come back? You were homesick, weren't you? You were homesick. You missed your mom. Admit it. You wanted some good Philippian cooking. That was the problem. That's why you're home. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say Epaphroditus was homesick. It says he got sick. See, look at, look at the text. Look at it. Look what it says. It says, for he has been longing for you all. Oh, it sounds like homesick. He's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. See, there it is. He was homesick. He's a baby. Knew we shouldn't have sent Epaphroditus. And Paul says, indeed, he was ill. He was even near to death. Well, maybe that wasn't homesick then. I never heard anybody get homesick to death. But God had mercy on him. Not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul says it's necessary to send him back because Epaphroditus, he was, he was distressed because they heard he was ill. He was distressed because he heard that they were distressed for him. He loved the church so much. He didn't want them to be distressed. And Paul's like, I've got to send him back then with this letter so that that his mind would be put at ease about how you're doing. He cares for you that much. He's an incredible, incredible example. And in fact, he just about died, but God had mercy on him. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve because he deserves to die just like we all do because of our sin. Paul doesn't deserve to have a friend like him, but yet God showed mercy and kept him around for him. And Epaphroditus is sent back then with the letter to care for people in the church and to be their example. Paul mentioned that he had been risking his life. I want to end on this. That word there is parabola. And it came to have some interesting usages. I know know I'm getting into some extra Greek stuff this morning that I don't normally do, but I think it's helpful. And in the days of the early church, after the the New Testament, there was actually an association of of men and women written about who were called, after this name, the Parabellini. And that meant the gamblers, the Kenny Rogers of their day. And they took as their hero, Epaphroditus, who Paul said had risked his life to care for him and to spread the gospel. And it was their mission then, unhesitatingly, to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ in every environment without hesitation. And like I said, they called themselves, after this Greek word, the parablini, or in English, the gamblers. And it's also interesting to note, they, 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 see, they, they were risk takers who, who risked their lives for the sake of the gospel. It's also interesting that in AD 252 in the city of Carthage, they, there was a terrible plague. 
And the, the people there were so frightened of the germs that there were bodies of the dead that they literally, they, they bagged them up somehow and threw them out of the city, not wanting to touch them for burial. And uh, Cyprian, the Christian bishop at the time, he gathered the congregation of the believing church together and the church members, they took these bodies and in a generous act of human kindness, they buried the dead bodies of the plague-stricken people. The Christians in 252 AD in Carthage became the gamblers who risked their lives to serve others and show love for others. Like the Parablini had and like, like Epaphroditus did risking his life to go care and serve for Paul. Or like uh, my friend uh, Jeremy, his mom was one of the ones, a friend of mine from Moody, his mom was one of the ones who was in the news a few months ago with the whole Ebola virus. And she's a missionary and she risked her life and she's back there now, by the way, which is curious. After getting Ebola, coming home, why would you go back? Because she wanted to risk her life to to be a servant, to be courageous, to spread the gospel. She too is an example like Epaphroditus of somebody who's, who's given it all, who's risked it all. He became Paul's friend, his co-worker, his fellow soldier, his comrade. He was the Philippians messenger. He was the Philippians minister. And he was a normal, everyday guy. And the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus show us that there were regular men, regular women in the church, in the early church who followed Paul's commands and lived out what it meant to follow Jesus. And there's no reason I can't. They serve as an example to me, just as Jesus serves as an example, a perfect example to me of how I ought to live. And like Jesus, I can trust the Holy Spirit. I can rely on prayer. I can rely on the word of God to follow him, to be like him. And when Paul writes about these examples, it just begs the question as we close, how's my example? How's my example? If I'm sent back somewhere with a letter like Epaphroditus or Timothy, will these things be written of me? If not, they should. Amen? We're, we're called to be like these men. We're called to be like Jesus. Let me pray. We'll sing, and uh, we'll call it a morning. Father, thanks for uh, giving us just tangible examples of guys in Scripture. Guys like Paul, guys like Timothy, guys who, who are, we know nothing else about, like Epaphroditus, who, who were common men. They were sinners like every man and woman here is a sinner. They're in need of your grace, like every man and woman here is in need of your grace. They, uh, they could never measure up on their own, just like we can never measure up on our own. Yet powerfully, Holy Spirit, you came as they trusted Jesus, just as you do us, you came and lived within them and indwelt them and, and changed them. And as they responded to that grace and as they even as we've looked at that definition of rejoicing over the last few weeks, as they chose to, to let your grace define who they are and become more and more like Jesus, their example now serves 2,000 years later for us, half a world away. Father, I pray for each of us, help us to be faithful in that same way, that at the end of our life, it could be said the same things, and that maybe our example would serve for generations to our children, and our children's children, and their children. 
and to, to our church and, and by your grace, churches that we may have the opportunity to plant in the future and to churches that maybe they would plant in the future and that, that our example would be one that would endure for generations, examples of your grace because we chose to let it define us and we chose to follow the example of men like Timothy and Epaphroditus. And Father, I pray for those who uh, are new or who are not Christians, who've never trusted you, that that they would see in Timothy and Epaphroditus and even more tangibly in in me and in others in our church, the example of those who've, who've trusted Jesus and who are growing to become like him and that they would see the change in, in our lives so that they too would be compelled to trust Jesus and turn to him and become like him, that they'd simply repent of their sin and, and turn from their way of life, Jesus, to you, that you'd redeem them, you'd save them, you'd make them new by your grace, just like you have us. Thank you, Father. We pray all this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen.